0: Hello, and welcome back to the Q's Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Protests against racial injustice and police brutality motivated by outrage over the killing of George Floyd at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer nearly two weeks ago, have the country on edge and clamoring for change. Tensions are high across America as protesters and police officers are often clashing over the right to have these protesters' voices heard. Now on Friday night, Sam Blum, our guest here on the Q's Conversations podcast, boy, what a story he has to tell. He's a sports reporter for the Dallas Morning News, who has been pivoting his focus to the protests taking place in Dallas. And uh, just to give our audience a little insight, Sam, into your background, right away you faced two pretty hostile actions uh, in in covering the protests, having both tear gas and then having guns drawn against you all in a three-day span. What a welcome to covering the protests. How are you holding up, Sam?
1: I'm fine. It was, um, you know, I I think I may have underestimated just, you know, how uh, intense the scene would be out there, but it was, uh, it was something that was an interesting experience. I, I'm fine though. You know, I think a lot of people in our industry faced a lot worse, uh, over the last week, um, getting arrested and getting actually beat up. I, you know, tear gas isn't fun. I got kind of stuck in the middle of the tear gas for about a minute, uh, which was pretty miserable, but, um, you know, I, it's just been a, it's been a, a interesting time for journalism in general and for newspaper reporters, uh, many of whom are fearful of losing their jobs or being furloughed. Uh, our newsroom had pay cuts. So, you know, it's we're all kind of facing this tough time while at the same time doing jobs that are clearly extremely essential and that other people, you know, are, you know aren't getting in the middle of. So we're doing important work, but it's, uh, you know, coming at an interesting time when newspapers in general are, are you know, facing tough financial realities like every other industry.
0: The fourth estate now more than ever, we really need to have accurate storytelling reporters on the ground. And the nation has been riveted and captivated by what's been taking place when you see. And for the most part, from what we hear, the protests are are peaceful. There have been some outbursts of violence in certain pockets across the country. But can you paint the picture, Sam, of what it was like in Dallas uh, when you first went out there to cover the protests? What was the scene like and what did you kind of observe before the
1: melees kind of took place. The interesting thing is, you know, I was out there on Saturday just the other day and it's, you know, you could tell how the protests have kind of become morphed into something more organized and more peaceful and more, you know, the message I think is more unified. Um, When I was out there on Friday, you know, and I get it because that was that same week. That was four days after the death of George Floyd. And I think, you know, those emotions were just for so many people just so high, understandably, Um, you know, not even, you know, not even just protesters. I feel like myself just being out there is, you know, you you understand why people are are protesting. And um, I think that's a whole other separate, interesting topic is, you know, covering this while at the same time, you know, I think so many people in so many newsrooms, you know, are feeling the emotions out there as well. Um, So, but, you know, on Friday night, it was uh, the first night that we were out there the day after the, you know, the Minnesota police precinct had kind of gone up in flames. I think, as a newsroom, we were all very much conscious that it was going to be um, a tense night. Uh, it started with a with a rally, um, you know, a very peaceful rally. And then as the kind of night fell, people uh, started marching. And, you know, I think the vast, vast, vast majority had a peaceful protest in mind. But, you know, there was some uh, violence and there was some uh, vandalism. But I think that the majority of it, was very peaceful and I think that it was just a I don't know. I I thought it was a very, very, very interesting night. It was um something I probably underestimated just how intense it would get. From my perspective, the use of tear gas, I was so surprised, um, because earlier in the night we were up on I guess it was the highway, honestly, and somebody had used gas of some kind. I'm not sure what it was. It looked like tear gas, but it wasn't. It just smelled like some sort of it honestly smelled like some sort of incense. Um, and so in that second when I was, when we were out back on the, uh, back in downtown and some gas came up in my face, I did not think it was tear gas. And then all of a sudden I couldn't breathe and I couldn't really see. Uh, and I got lost in, in the gas right in the middle of it. Um, and it was, it was just like the most painful thing ever. I mean, i I'm, I think a lot of people have kind of gone through that the last couple of weeks, but you know, getting stuck right there and not being able to get out. Actually the whole purpose of the tear gas was to keep the police line. They were about a dozen police or probably more in riot gear and they were trying to keep people back. Um, not that I think it was necessary personally. Um, I don't think they were really facing a serious threat. Most of the, most of the protesters had dispersed into different areas. There weren't that many people there. I'm not sure why they used the tear gas, but the whole purpose of it was to keep people back. And When I got stuck, I like couldn't see, I was just kind of like running around and I actually passed the police line and I was asking them for help. I was literally begging them for help. And uh, I did not get any. Uh, they told me to get back. They screamed at me to get back. Uh, one person said, one of the police officers said, you shouldn't have been there to begin with, which I think is an absolutely ridiculous thing to say. Um, your job is to protect people, uh, you know, not just protect yourselves. Um, and it, that's what it felt like they were doing, especially in my situation. I did not understand why I wasn't given any help. The person who helped me actually was, I'm not sure if he was a protester or if he was uh, just a, you know, bystander. but you know somebody came in got me out of there helped me out carried me out um, there's a cool photo of it on twitter um which i didn't know existed until a couple of days after when one of our photographers actually got a really nice picture of of this man helping me uh, and then some people some people who actually were protesters had milk and they gave it to me and put it on my face which very much helped um just it was a disappointing experience to kind of have uh feel like you know desperate couldn't breathe, you know, and have these people that could have helped me, uh, police officers that could have helped, they didn't. Um, and, uh, I thought, you know, I thought that was a, (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be any, be too controversial. I was just really disappointed with that, with the way that was handled. And I didn't think the tear gas in general was necessary. Um, you know, I think that's something that's we're we're, as a nation, we're kind of coming to an understanding. We're seeing a lot of, a lot of videos come out over the last week and a half of just unnecessary police force. you know, and that's not a controversial statement. I think there's been just so many examples of, you know, people just getting pushed down, elderly people being pushed down, uh, you know, use of tear gas uh, in, in unnecessary situations. And it's, uh, you know, I, mean, I think for as much uh, as we hear about certain protesters being, you know, crossing the line, which I agree with, you know, you shouldn't loot, you shouldn't vandalize, you know, this is your community. This is our community. This is everyone's community. You know, it's, People who spent years and years creating these businesses uh, shouldn't, you know, there's no right for anybody to vandalize or loot. But at the same time, um, you know, we're seeing plenty examples of police using excessive force in times when it's not called for. So in your estimation,
0: there wasn't a critical moment that led to the police using tear gas other than they were just trying to control the protesters and keep them back from where their line was?
1: Basically, I mean, at the, what, I, what I had seen where I was, I had kind of gotten up closer to the situation because there was one woman who was engaging in uh, kind of some sort of, you know, she was like engaging the police up close and people were actually yelling for her to come back. But it was one woman. You know what I mean? It was one person. Um, you know, obviously people were like throwing water bottles at them, but they were standing there in riot gear. Um, you know, all I saw was water bottle. I don't know if anything else was done. I mean, it's tough for me to survey every single detail of what happened. Um, Sure, a lot was happening, uh, but you know, from my perspective, from where we were, the protest had dispersed to some extent. I think people had gone off in different directions. I think some people had went home. Um, it had been going on for several hours. Uh, it just kind of seemed like the pol- it seemed like the police had kind of gotten to a point where they wanted to clear the downtown area. Uh, that was pretty much what they said over loudspeakers. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I get wanting people to go home. It was a tense situation. Um, and people had been breaking the law. But at the same time, I don't think that it was at, it was not at its most critical moment. And that's why I was so surprised when I was tear gassed and why when other people were tear gassed too, it was just kind of like, why why did that happen?
0: I feel like before before the last two weeks, a vast majority of Americans have never been tear gassed. And I know you talked a little bit about that exposure, what that was like, can you go into a little more detail about the confusion that you were thinking? Because you're, you're reaching out to police for help. And we, most of us imagine the police are there to protect and serve. It's, it's their motto. And you're sitting there, you're, you're struggling, you're kind of, are you stumbling your way around through the crowd of people? Like how, how insane was that? I
1: was, I was one of the few, I, I think that most people had gotten out of the way of it. I had just gotten in, I would have been unfortunately kind of in there. And like I said, I didn't anticipate it to be tear gas. So when it did hit me, I was, you know, they had thrown a lot of canisters, I think. I mean, there, you could see there's some overhead photos of, of what kind of what the scene looked like. And there was just a lot of tear gas. So I was kind of stuck in the middle of it. Um, and it was just, yeah, I don't think there were a lot of people there. It was tough for me to see. Obviously, the police had their, they had masks, uh, gas masks, so they weren't feeling the effects of it. Um, but it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was just like. A lot of confusion. It was honestly kind of a lot of fear because you really can't breathe all that well. I think that the tear gas aspect of it is, you know, I think that it kind of gets lost on people. It's not just, it's really not, from my perspective, it wasn't the eyes that were the worst part. It was breathing. It was like, it was tough to breathe in it. Really tough. Um, and I even fell to the ground at one point. That was when the guy came in and got me. So, you know, I, that was what was the most frustrating part of it. Looking back, I mean, in the moment you're not frustrated, you're just like scared, but I was very frustrated and, and you know, I think that throughout the you know the country, you're seeing you've just seen kind of unnecessary use of tear gas. It's a really horrifying, dangerous, scary chemical uh, that I mean, it just it's hard to believe that peaceful protesters are are um, you know deserving of something like that. To be honest, I mean, listen, if you're not peaceful yeah. and you're breaking the law, you know, I'm I'm not going to defend that. Um, but uh, if you are, I mean, it's it's a violation of your First Amendment rights to be you know punished for something like that. So. You know, I've seen other small things. I mean, in Dallas alone, you know, on Monday night, last Monday, um, I think almost 600 people. I'm not 100% sure on the exact number, so I don't want to say it. But you know, they were arrested on a bridge here, Um, and you know, our reporters basically reported that I wasn't there for this night. But um, you know, they were brought up onto the bridge. They were trying to, you know, stay in a they were basically led to believe that it was, they were fine to go and and follow this path. And when they were on the bridge, they were stopped there, weren't allowed off. And every single one of them was arrested a couple days later. They announced that nobody was going to be charged for it, but it was, you know, it was, I think people were surprised to basically be led to their arrest. um, Almost some sort of feeling of an an entrapment. Um, But it was, you know, it was just a weird situation. I mean, I was out on Sunday night, like you said, with the, with the, I thought Sunday was scarier than Friday, to be honest with you, because I went out after the, the curfew started and, you know, first thing we see 10 minutes into curfew are people's running. I mean, because the police are shooting pepper balls at them. Um, and, you know, we, I was with one other person. We were asked to stay in pairs. And so we actually stood by a couple really kind, nice, and helpful state troopers uh, who were not part of the, they did not have access to the pepper ball gun. So their, their job was more just to kind of like stand and watch and kind of be of assistance. So we stood by them because we knew we would be safe from getting shot at. Um, but really when I mean, we saw people up close getting shot at, I mean, I saw a couple of people just kind of ask for directions and police were just, you know, as I tweeted a video of it, just police ripping off the, the face masks, you know, in the middle of a pandemic of two of two people who I don't even know if they were protesters or not. Uh, they had only announced the curfew four hours prior. So it's, it's, you know, people may have just been out un- unaware that there was a curfew. Um, and it had only started 30 minutes before. So, um, you know, it's, it was, uh, you know, I've seen that I've seen just kind of unnecessary use of, uh, at least I don't want to classify it as unnecessary because, you know, it's not really my job to, to decide that, but, you know, as sure. an unbiased reporter who, you know, a week ago probably had a much different perspective on all of these issues, you know, I, I see what I don't believe to be a yet, ne- yet necessary use of, of a force, whether that's, uh, pepper balls or, uh, you know, it's terrifying to have a gun pointing at you, whether that's a regular bullet or it's or it's pepper balls. It's like, you know, and when a police in, in riot gear jump out of a car and point a gun at you, it's like, you know, and you're standing there and thankfully every single one of them I held up a press badge and I give them credit for adhering to the exempt exemption rules for reporters, and they did not shoot and every single one of them. Um, you know, stopped right when they saw it, and I held up the badge. So I appreciated that. Um one of my colleagues, Joe Hoyt, uh who I was out with, you know, he got uh accosted from behind by a cop who just grabbed him and it's in the video I tweeted and just pulled and threw him to the side and I was like, go home. And um, you know, Joe then showed his pet press badge and the police officer did apologize. Um, but you know, it's just it's one of those situations where you'd hope that there that the there there'd be more of a, a calm approach before a shove. You know what I mean? And so sure um that's perspective I had. Uh just being out there, it's been it's been really it was really tense. I'm glad that things have calmed down. I'm glad that things have really become um, you know more peaceful. I'm glad that you know over the last few days uh during these protests, I appreciate the fact that police have you know instead of engaging with protesters, they have actually been blocking off streets and keeping people those people safe um and not really um and not really inserting themselves into it uh too much but you know I think the first couple of days it was a feeling out of just kind of what to do. And, you know, there were a lot of mistakes made. Uh, I think, you know, probably on, on, bo- on both sides of the aisle, but, you know, I think, I think that if people want, if you want your citizens and you want your people to, to really feel trust, um, then, you know, with on both sides, then, you know, it's, it's better to try to keep things peaceful, especially, you know, when, when that's the goal.
0: Now, can you uh, give a little more background, Sam, into what exactly did happen on, on Sunday? You mentioned the fact that once people, once the police saw your your press badge that they backed off of you, what was it that led to them pulling the guns on you in the first place? And 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 was there a moment where you realized, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm really, this could be a bad moment. I'm kind of in trouble here.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was like, I, 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 again, like on Friday night, like I said, I walked out feeling pretty confident that everything was going to be fine. I wasn't worried. And on Sunday, it was the same thing. You know, it was like, you know, you don't real. I was like, oh, the press are exempt from the curfew. But I don't real. I guess I didn't realize just how, how, like, how aggressive the police were going to be in getting people off the streets for the curfew, which, you know, I guess to their credit, I mean, that's, you know, the goal is to keep people off the streets. I feel like it was a concerted effort to be aggressive right from the start and get people off um, and to push people out- outside of the curfew zone. So, you know, you understand that. Um, at the same time, you know, it was like, it was a little scary just because, you know, they come up in a, in like, what looks like kind of a, this car with, you know, I mean, it's in the video with like so many police officers in it. They're just kind of streaming out one by one. And <laughs> every single one of them just points the gun right at you and <laughs> right at And they see you and then you are holding up the badge and you could hear in the video, I'm just like press every time. And it's like, okay, you know, they, they listen to that, but it's still, you know, they didn't, they didn't listen to everybody and it's a tense situation for them. I get it. I think that's lost on people sometimes that it is tense for everybody. Um, but you know, and this is, and they're trained in a certain way, uh, and you know, they're not using lethal force. Um, all of those things are accurate, but it was still not, nonetheless, still not a, not a super fun situation, uh, to kind of have to be in. Um, and you know, I think that we were smart on Sunday night for our newsroom, you know, we went out, um, probably, you know, just, we weren't prepared uh, for, I had a press badge, but nothing else to really identify me. And, uh, you know, the day after, thankfully one of our other re- reporters went out and purchased helmets that said press on it, vests that said press on it, uh, and actually goggles too, just in case, you know, you know, you, we, there was a story in our paper of a protester who was shot in the eye and I believe lost sight in one of his eyes, uh, with a pepper ball. So, you know, um, we, we were smart the next days in having all of that gear and equipment, um, that I think was necessary. Because when you have that, you're so much more readily identifiable. Um, sure. And it's helpful. So on that first night, we didn't have that. And I think that, that like, you know, there's nothing... I could have been a protester for all they knew uh, or someone that was, you know, that they viewed as a threat. So, I mean, I get, I get it to some extent. But, it, you know, I also am uh, glad that we became more prepared in the days after that. So, and you
0: mentioned, Sam, the fact that you felt like the police were more organized, they, they got a sense, they got a better understanding of what they were dealing with as the days and the week went on. And it seems like the same is true for the Dallas Morning News. Can you compare how your planning meetings for you as a reporter covering the protests, how they changed and evolved from the beginning to now?
1: Well, I mean, we were very prepared, I think, on Friday night um, just for what might happen because uh, four years ago here in Dallas, almost to the day, on July, I believe it was 7th, uh, 2016 and I wasn't here. So if I got the date wrong, I apologize, but we had a, a horrible, horrible, horrible night here, um, where four police officers were, uh, killed, uh, during a protest or an otherwise peaceful protest. Um, and it was, you know, just one of the more tragic days. And I think in this entire city's history. So, you know, I think we had some people that were, were experienced in, in dealing with, a, uh, you know, a, a really, Intense protest, and, and so we were from the start had a lot of people, a lot of resources on it. Um, you know, we were ready for it, uh, and you know, I, I think as a whole, our newsroom became more ready just for the, just having that that gear that maybe identified us more easily. Because you know, I don't think we, anyone could have anticipated just the level of force being used against reporters all across the country. I mean, I know people, you know, I and, and, and we're talking about Syracuse, you know, a legendary photographer Dennis Nett at com. I mean, you saw the video of him just getting absolutely destroyed by for absolutely no reason. Um, you know, that's one of the more upsetting videos I've ever seen, honestly, because it's a journalist and someone, you know, you, I've met and known and a great photographer. Um, and, and honestly, I believe he's like 60 years old. What do you, what, what's the, what's, why, why hit him? You know, and it's on video. Um, and so that, uh, I don't think anybody in our newsroom could have anticipated just what would happen across the country and just how prepared we would need to be as a newsroom uh, for for just reporters being uh, targeted. Um, You know, in my last newspaper where I worked before at AL.com, Alabama media group, um, you know, we have like, one of our social media reporters was at and just got absolutely beaten up by protesters, you know, just got beaten up so bad it was on video. Um, And, you know, that was upsetting. And uh, two other reporters from ale.com were arrested, you know, for no reason. So it's, it's, um, there've been volatile situations. Like I said, I think I'm lucky to have only had what I had, especially kind of being out in those first couple of days. Protesters, I think, have become more unified, organized and peaceful. And I think that the message has really, you know, I was out there on Saturday. I think there were maybe 5,000 people marching. It was uh, just such a large crowd. And I think that message resonated powerfully. And I think our stories as a whole have evolved from just covering the, just the kind of the the scene of these protests, where, which are sometimes, especially early on, be very volatile. To now covering the people protesting, why they're protesting, and the stories and the city, and and just kind of what it all means for the police. Uh, and so I think that those the stories and the coverage have evolved. Uh, I think that it's it's become so powerful and pro uh, and necessary to to kind of tell those types of stories. And I'm glad that the coverage is no longer just you know, what's been destroyed and what's, you know, what, what police are doing and, you know, if it's fair or not. And, and I'm glad it's involved in something more, more forward looking.
0: And, w- and when it comes to telling those stories, it really is on all of us as, as Americans to try to play a role in understanding where both sides of the coin are coming from. Now, granted, the ones who are, be- are protesting are the ones who feel like their voices have been oppressed or they support the fact that these biases have been, uh, have been executed out against their fellow citizens. So it's great to see the rallying cry of people who don't know each other coming together. And your paper, along with newspapers and TV stations around the country, are doing a very admirable job of telling those stories while being under attack from both the police and from the president. It's a very scary time to be a journalist. How has this, Sam, emboldened you and your colleagues to, in the face of these attacks, to want to keep striving to do
1: your job even more and and be even better with it, yeah, I and mean, that's a great question. It's like you know, it's cool because I mean, I've, I, I've always, I mean, I think you know, even even as a sports reporter, you kind of feel those things from different, you know, you you feel the attacks from people that are maybe unfair and unnecessary, and it's kind of evolved over the last couple of years, especially with the president's rhetoric um, against the media. But you know, I, I think um, I think one of the most important things is just uh, you know, people in our newsroom, I've learned a lot from them, uh, from people that have covered news, just on people that have maybe felt the effects uh, that we're, people are protesting right now, you know, in a way that I haven't. So, um, you know, I try to, when we have these meetings and you know, I try to sit back and kind of listen to some of you know, their voices a little bit more, um, what they think is valuable in the coverage, you know, because I'm, I'm just kind of following in that way. And that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I feel like emboldened, a lot. I just would say that I feel like more experienced and I feel like I've got a different perspective on all these issues just because I've learned from the people I work with and I've learned from being out there. Um, And I really don't, you know, I wish that people (laughs) wouldn't, uh, you know, follow in what the president says and calling the press the enemy of the people. I don't, you know, I don't appreciate that. You know, part of, part of my job a couple of months ago was covering the open Texas rallies, you know, in the exact same spots really. So there were, you know, these protests that um, I don't think they ever got to that level of just number of people in them, but there were a lot of people that were protesting that they wanted the state open. And it was, you know, I would say that they were, you know, most of a lot of people in the rallies would come with Trump gear. It was uh, you know, it was a totally different crowd. Um, and, you know, in, in the first protest I covered on Friday night for uh, this, you know, for, in, you know, in this moment was, you know, there was chance of dump Trump. So it's, it's totally different. I, I think that, you know, your job is to kind of go out there and do the same thing for both of them, which is to just kind of report on exactly what happens. Um, you know, I've, I, I don't really like to insert my opinion. I feel like I've told you're the first person I have really kind of expressed my opinion to on a more formal level, because I feel like, um, it's not even so much as an opinion as it is just a, there's just facts on the ground, you know, whether that's me saying I don't think that tear gas should be used or, um, me saying that I feel like, you know, there's been a line crossed in some areas. Like I, I don't think those things are even, uh, debatable. And uh, I think when people look back at this moment and we have time to digest and we have time to really do a you know, post mortem of everything that's happened, you know, I think people will, will undoubtedly say, you know, the things that I've said, because um, they're just they're just they're just facts on the ground as someone that's reported on it and seen it and lived through it. So, um, you know, I, like I said, I don't feel emboldened too much. I feel like I just feel like I'm learning and uh, having an you know, interesting experience, uh, hopefully other people in my position are gaining that same knowledge and and learning a lot too because you know if you were to ask me on about all these issues that people are protesting you know two weeks ago I probably wouldn't say the things I'm saying now but um or I wouldn't have the same beliefs that I do now but you know being out there talking to those people hearing what they have to say um you know I think it's uh you know I think it's powerful for us to learn that um whether that's other protesters or reporters or just you know people happen to be walking by.
0: So how did you end up going from you know, getting ready to cover Joey Gallo and Lance Lynn and the Texas Rangers getting ready for the baseball season, so to speak, before COVID, to being on the front lines of the protests? Was that something where did management ask for kind of all hands on deck with the protests?
1: Well, so right after the, I mean, I, I wish we were covering baseball. Don't get me wrong. I, <laughs> uh, it was supposed to be my first season covering the Rangers, uh, covering Major League Baseball, really. I was really excited about it. Um, and I'm still hopeful. Although you know, even as recently as five minutes before we got on this call, it kind of seems like the new proposal for Major League Baseball is not doing too well. But yeah, so <laughs> I mean, we'll see. You know, I'm still optimistic that uh, who knows, uh, we'll find out. But uh, no, to answer your question, it was more like um, myself and one of their sports reporters were moved over to cover news. I'm glad that our our reporters have um, you know really been given the opportunity to go and cover interesting stories. You know, I've been writing sports stories throughout this pro- throughout this process, mostly as it relates to COVID-19 and even some of the protests. Um, you know, I find that there's not much, um, you know, when these large scale world events happen, you know, sports are not immune from dealing with it, obviously. So just because sports aren't happening, uh, you know, those questions are still being asked all the time. Like I've, you know, I think one of the most interesting topics right now is the return of college sports. You know, we talk about baseball, but you know, um, I think it's an interesting time because uh, you know when you we're, the whole issue with pro baseball not returning is because you know the players have a say in it and the owners have a say in it and there's there needs to be a consensual agreement that there will be baseball played but in the college on the side of college sports you know that that agreement isn't necessarily um, two ways it's it's uh, you know players don't get paid and they don't really have a union and they don't really have a say and so I think you know we're we're in an interesting time right now we're going to find out just how, how, uh, how impactful that lack of power is. Um, and, uh, you know, I think all of those things, those issues are going to be coming to the forefront. Uh, so we're going to be writing about those and we're going to be writing about everything as it relates to sports and, and its hopeful return. But, um, you know, yeah, so I've been covering breaking news and uh, covering sports and uh, not really taking much time off. Uh, it's been very busy which is good. I'm glad to be busy and I'm glad to be working. I'm glad to be a value in my newsroom and, uh, you know, happy to not get, uh, you know, uh, tear gassed anymore. Uh, <laughs> I,
0: uh, I yeah. This will put everything else in perspective and, and not to try to make light of it, but it is, I mean, you know, you're, you're a sports guy covering Southern Methodist university. You're getting ready to cover the Texas Rangers and Oh, by the way, you're getting tear gassed and having guns drawn on you, you know, covering yeah. the protests while the, the press are getting attacked from all angles out there, you talked about COVID-19 and the return of sports. And we've, we've been doing a lot with our podcast, too, about the impact of COVID-19. If you, you mentioned baseball. Baseball's struggling. They can't get a plan in place that both sides agree to. And at Syracuse, we're really concerned about what's going to happen with college football and basketball and all of our college sports for the Orange. What do you see with regards to your beat with Southern Methodist and with covering college sports and, and sports in general? Do you see this where we might have you know, they've, they've done these accelerated plans where we're going to start school earlier this fall and then not come back after Thanksgiving. Do you think that football and other sports for the collegiate games are going to happen or is there going to be major modifications to the way that sports are played in the fall?
1: I I definitely think there's going to be modifications. Um, I definitely feel like, you know, there's no way to get a character dome full, um, if it's even done with this construction. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think that one of the most interesting things that's been a result of COVID-19 has just been we've all kind of realized that higher education is not necessarily as impenetrable as um, it once seemed. And I feel like, especially as it relates to college sports, um, you know, you really see, you really see, I mean, the debate has been for so long, you know, college athletes get everything handed to them blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't agree with that argument, but that's kind of the argument. You know, they get free education, they get free food, et cetera, et cetera. But now you're seeing, okay, just how important college athletes are to the university. You know, you're seeing just how important, you know, playing college football is. I mean, we would not be having these accelerated talks about the return of college football if it was not absolutely necessary for the universities that play these sports. Um, You know, that money is just so valuable and it's so necessary and I hope that people see beyond, you know, just the uh, kind of the return of college sports and see, just see, see that message of, you know, really athletes, um, you know, the their value to universities is immeasurable and there really aren't, there really isn't higher education without college football and for a lot of schools and, and really for a lot of those schools, um, you know, that make the backbone of what, you know, universities and college and higher education in America is all about. So you know, I hope that's, that's kind of a, uh, something that's noticed. That's, a, you know, as um, a message. And I, I mean, I'm optimistic that we'll, we will have college football. Uh, we will have college basketball. I think for that reason that there's just such a, such a desperation to get it done. Um, and, you know, I think that, well, obviously, you know, the pandemic, who knows what will happen with it. I'm encouraged to see that the numbers of people dying every day has been decreasing over the last month and a half. That's an encouraging sign. Obviously less people dying is always better. Um, and it's, uh, you know, hopefully that's the trend that continues that, you know, we see fewer and fewer people dying. But, you know, um, obviously this pandemic is unpredictable and came out of nowhere. So, I mean, I think, I think people saying, you know, we're going to have campus, we're going to have people on campus in the fall and we're going to have college sports in the fall. People that tell you that, you know, are, are telling what they hope and not what they know. Because, I mean, if we rewound to March, I don't think anybody would have said that, you know, they could have predicted what would happen. So there's no way to predict what will happen in September and and October and November. and, And when everyone wants college football to be played and wants normalcy to return. But, you know, obviously I think some of the numbers are becoming more optimistic. Um, Hopefully that trend continues, but you know, the main, the main thing I would say is that what we're seeing right now is just the true value that college athletes bring, not just to, you know, their teams, but really to their schools and to just the education in general. Um, And I hope people, understand that because I think it's an important message.
0: Now, transitioning, Sam, to your educational history, we talk about colleges and we talk about the impact that the student-athletes are having on their different colleges. You came to Syracuse and earned a newspaper and online journalism degree from Newhouse. Why did you choose Syracuse and what are some of the ways that Newhouse shaped you when it comes to your reporting and your career, especially right now with the Dallas Morning News during these pivotal times?
1: Yeah, I mean I came to Syracuse, obviously for that house program 100%. Um, you know, I started out doing the WAR morning or trying to get on the day WAR morning broadcast. I'm not sure if you can tell based on this uh, you know, uh this um podcast, but I'm really not great on TV or radio or talking, so I'm glad that didn't work out. <laughs> but um yeah. You know, it was a uh, it was that uh, I loved my experience at Syracuse university. Um, you know, I think that really where I learned so much, honestly, was the daily orange. And, you know, we had a lot of great professors that really encouraged us to do work there and, 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 um, highlighted our work there. Both, uh, professor, uh, Steve Davis, Emily Davis were, I think they're since retired, but, uh, they were, you know, two incredible resources and, uh, support systems and, um, you know there were plenty of other professors just that you know really wanted us to to go out and do actual work. I think that was always important um you know important part of the new house degree was going out and reporting and you know, I went uh in the two thousand and sixteen election with uh, Joel Kaplan professor Kaplan to New hampshire for uh for a week to cover uh I covered chris christie I still have uh chris Christie lawn sign in my trunk in the trunk of my car, which I will never get rid of. It's a <laughs> historical <laughs> uh memento both from that you know, really cool experience of going to New Hampshire for that, you know, for that time, but also just because, you know, Chris Christie earning for president um, <laughs> Donald Trump. I mean, you know, what could be better? Uh, <laughs> uh, and that was, and I was there when he, when he dropped out, you know, so it was just, it was like, I love, I love that time, but you know, it's uh, you know, just the, the New ass experience was, was fantastic. It's why I went to, to Syracuse. I uh, was recently back up there for our daily orange kind of reunion back in October. When uh, you know before the, the the school had to tear the house down, unfortunately, um, but maybe fortunately, it was it was certainly uh, falling apart by the time we went back for that last time. But it was um you know it was just a just a great great experience. Uh, I feel like I learned so much about you know just reporting and and, and really reporting these difficult stories, uh, holding people accountable. That was something we always valued just you know a lot. Um, working on stories that you know I think weren't student journalists. I never thought of ourselves as a student journalists, really. I mean, it was always, like, we're covering these people, we're covering these stories, we're covering these things like, like anybody else. And we are competing against, you know, Syracuse.com and, um, you know, the local TV stations. And I thought we always held our own. So, um, you know, I, I, if I had to give a real shout-out, it, it, it was to the Daily Orange and just really that that experience shaped me. You know, got all my – really all my closest friends from the school were from there and um, just, just – uh, you know working there eight hours a day after after school and it was uh you know life-changing and really just shaped my whole life so uh i you know wouldn't uh have traded it for anything i'm glad i ended up going to syracuse and having those experiences and um you know it's uh it's the reason why i'm doing this this cool work today that i think people are uh, you know find interesting and in why i'm on this podcast so
0: well, if you want to get involved in following the great stories that Sam is telling for the Dallas morning news, you can follow him on Twitter at Sam Blum three That's Sam B L U M and the number three. Uh, you can also follow at Dallas news for his coverage with the Dallas morning news. And hopefully one of these days soon, Sam, we get back to you covering SMU and your first season with the Texas Rangers and not have to be focused as much on the pandemic and all the other racial upheaval. We'll hopefully work our way through this and, get some change to take place. It's been a, a crazy time for all of us, but your reporting has been top-notch, and we really wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about pivoting, because clearly when you got into journalism, I don't think you envisioned, uh, again, being tear-gassed and, and having guns drawn on you while covering these protests, and you've done a great job of bringing the news to the people of Dallas and the state of Texas and really, you know, around the country. It's, it's fascinating to see the work you're doing, and we wish you nothing but
1: the best. Well, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get back in the dome at some point too. So I appreciate it. And uh, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, Great talking to you, John.
0: Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Q's Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the CUSE Conversations podcast.